for that time God you know is dealing with me in many ways in many ways till that day he was he's been very faithful to me I couldn't explain uh, in an uh, hour or two how many times that he saved me in Syria from death and from rockets from bullets you know every day was a miracle in Syria till now Welcome back to Beyond Soundbites. This narrative podcast series shares the voices of displaced people in order to remind fellow faith-driven refugee supporters that listening to those for whom we advocate is critical. It reminds us God created every single person who becomes displaced and loves him or her with a depth we cannot comprehend. I'm Jacob Mao. You're listening to episode four of six in this series. Last episode, we talked with Dariush, a second-generation displaced person of Afghan-Iranian origin. In this episode, we'll meet two people whose refugee identity is just beginning to take shape. Roman and Oge a young Kurdish couple from northern Syria, sit in the lounge of a hotel in southeast Turkey. He's wearing blue jeans, a sweater, and round black-rimmed glasses. She's in a bubble jacket, jeans, and high-top tennis shoes. Her dark hair hangs down in loose curls. In the last two months, they've experienced things that explain both the tender playfulness between them and a weight of loss that they each quietly carry in their features and their speech. They are newlyweds, Three weeks ago, they crossed a border and also gained the label refugee. The ceiling lights are on a timer, and just before we start our conversation, they shut off. It's 10 o'clock at night. Oge turns on the flashlight on her phone and sets it pointing upward on the small coffee table. Squeezed together in an oversized armchair, they share their story. Roman interprets for her first. I grew up in Aleppo. I'm the third oldest of five sisters and one brother. My dad taught French, and the atmosphere of our home growing up was focused on studying. When I was young, I went to a private school that was Christian. The education in Aleppo was very organized. At home, my siblings and I fought some, which is unavoidable in a big family. But overall, it was a place of love and peace. <laughs> okay. As Oge speaks, she and Roman pause often, talking back and forth in a mix of Kurdish and Arabic. What you're hearing is a paraphrase built from Oge's words and bits of the story that Roman injects or fills in when she defers some questions to him. We left Aleppo when I was 16 because of the war. 
and went to live in the countryside. When we were there, a friend of my father's, another Kurdish man who believed in Jesus, started visiting on a regular basis to do teaching lessons from the Bible, starting from the beginning with Adam and God. He made a trip to Lebanon to bring back Bibles for us. He also gave us handouts of worship songs in Kurdish. I didn't really believe until there were some miracles. One of my sisters was healed from a pain in her back. My sisters and I started writing Kurdish hymns and singing them at home. After my father's friend moved to Lebanon for good, we started going to a church in the countryside. I didn't like it at first, but after a while I started to see Jesus' love in the people there. They encouraged me and helped me find my talents. I got to be part of a play we put on at the church. The play will come back up in their story later. Overall, Oge seems more comfortable listening than speaking, so from here on, Roman does most of the talking. He grew up in Aleppo as well, although his story is not the same. For me, it's a little bit different. (laughs) It's not full of love and peace. (laughs) Roman describes his family as coming from a background of Zoroastrianism, a Persian religion that predates the Islamic era and is still practiced by many Kurdish people and Iranians. He has two brothers. The three of them all wandered between different religions growing up in Aleppo, Zoroastrianism, Orthodox Christianity, and Islam. It caused fights and tensions in his family, as a teenager, Roman bounced between Zoroastrianism and Islam. And for me, that Zoroastrianism is not a clear religion. You don't know how to pray, you don't know how to fast, you don't know what to do, you're just Zoroastrian. So, and I want to be near from God, and they, uh, in Islam I found a, a clear way to do it. You know, you just pray five times and do this stuff. But the switch to Islam didn't last long. The family moved to another, more open area of Aleppo, where Roman met Orthodox Christians and many other Kurds, one of whom became a friend and enlightened Roman to the history of violence and oppression their people had suffered at the hands of Islam. Uh, You know, he's talking that stuff that uh, I heard it for the first time in my life. Mm. And I was, what? And I go back home and search more deeply, you know, in Islam, and I found it, that is true. I remember that night, clearly, I went back, I was walking back home, I look up the sky and I said, God, where are you? I want you. During his first year in college, a friend invited Roman to a meeting for Christian youth one evening. Really, the friend just told him where he was going and Roman invited himself. A couple days later, he went with his friend to a church service. It was uh, called uh, Jesus Light of the World, Yeshua Nur Alam. At the door, there is a verse from the Bible, come to uh, all you who worry, and I will give you rest. And I said, wow, who's that going to give me rest? We entered, and it was my first time when the preacher said, God loves you. It was my first time that I heard that God loved me. I always used to try to please God. I was, it's from my side to love him 
and and to obey him and to do the things that he ordered but i never heard in my life that he loves me he loves me before even he created me so you know i was just crying i found love because in my family i'm in i'm in, uh, we are three brothers and i'm in the middle so my younger and older they are the superstar in the family so i'm i'm not the super so just you know all the big family all just ignoring me and i i really needed love roman studied the bible and continued participating in the church community his faith deepened he read in matthew about the magi who were most likely zoroastrian astronomers coming to honor the baby messiah he studied the messianic prophecies. He had a vision during a church service. I was uh, sitting in the church, and the voice of preachers starts, you know, going down and down and down. Suddenly, I saw Christ, you know, just walking in the church, and he stood close to me, and he just, you know, giving his hand to shake, you know, to say hi, and I just hold his hand. I said hi, and just he walking that I, you know, I couldn't just look behind and say where is going in the soil. And the voice of preacher is clear again. And I was, you know, in my heart, you know, just wow. In 2007, God worked a small miracle for Roman. He had stayed out too late at a church Christmas party and was terrified on his way home because he knew that his parents, who didn't yet know that he had started to believe in Jesus, would ask him where he had been. I was near my house i raised my eyes to the sky and i said please god be with me and i will never lie to them and i entered the house when i entered they was sitting in the sitting room and drinking cafe uh i said good um hello and they look at me and they said hello and they continued talking to each other and I sat for, for a while and no questions at all. And I said, oh my God. And then <laughs> I went back to my room and I just started praising God, <laughs> you know. By 2012, Roman and Oge City had become a war zone. He didn't volunteer details about the destruction Aleppo endured, other than to say that in the midst of war, God's miracles continued. For that time, God, you know, is dealing with me in many ways, in many ways, till that day. Uh, he was, he's been very faithful to me. Uh, I couldn't explain it, you know. Uh, in an uh, hour or two, how many times that he saved me in Syria mm. from death and from rockets and from bullets, you know, 
every day was a miracle in Syria, till now. Yeah. Lacking the official education documents he needed to postpone being recruited to fight for the government forces, Roman decided to leave Aleppo for a largely Kurdish area of Syria around 2013, the same area where Elge and her family ended up. He worked with an aid organization and did ministry with the church. After a couple of years, compounding forces began to push and pull on Roman's life. But the things uh, started like two years ago when uh, the Kurdish uh, local government, you know, started taking guys to war and fighting without uh, training enough. For me, you know, I, I believe in God and, and I don't want to kill. I don't want to share that war. I just want to live. Uh, he also wanted to stay with the church. There weren't many young men left. The church is still going, uh, but you you will see no guys. It's only families and, and, and girls. Uh, most of guys, I mean, there's still two only. And I'm the third recently left. By now, the pull to leave the country was strong. Millions had already left by this time, including many of Roman's extended family. But even as the town was militarizing around them, Roman met his soon-to-be bride. This series of Beyond Soundbites was created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership. If you're listening before September 2018, you can still register for their annual North America event. Let's hear a word from Rob Perry. Hi, I'm Rob Perry in Toronto with the Refugee Highway Partnership. On October 24th to 26th in Chicagoland, our 10th annual roundtable will bring together churches, ministries, and individuals from the U.S. and Canada who are supporting forcibly displaced people. Learn more and sign up at rhpna.com. It's almost one in the morning by the time we get this far in the story. All three of us are exhausted. We decide to call it a night, and we pick up the story the next day in the quietest place we can find. The Sunday school classroom of a big church building, made available to us by the pastor and his wife. Roman resumes where Elge had left off, a church play in the village where they had both gone to escape the violence of Aleppo. Well, uh, we meet each other at the church. We had uh, played together uh, in the church. Uh, we acted, and the first scene was uh, me and her. So I was, uh, you know, uh, thinking about her and. Uh, trying to see her and watch her from, uh, you know, far away. And uh, the day I'm, I'm asked her, actually, uh, I was expecting rejected, that she will say no. But when she said yes, uh, I was shocked, actually. It gets a little complicated here. From that point, they followed a formal courtship, but it was secret at first. They met regularly with their pastor and with Oge's mother, but Oge's father didn't know, nor did any other relatives, church members, or family members. 
Other young men in the community were trying to court Oge as well, but her mother kept rejecting them, telling them it wasn't her time yet. Eventually, Oge's grandmother talked to Oge's mother one day and figured out what was going on. She was delighted about Roman and Oge's relationship, and she was adamant about making it known to Oge's father. Her nana was so happy, and she said, okay, I'm not leaving your house until your husband uh, shall know, and I will tell him myself. And I said, no, you, you don't need to tell him now because things are not certain yet, and blah, blah, blah. Her nana was, no, I will to tell him tonight. In the beginning, he rejected but when they pressure on him, and he said, okay, let me see. <laughs> so, um, so he asked uh, me and my parents uh, to come to visit them. But my pastor and his wife, they went to their house and they explained things about me and um, how, I, how I live and certain, you know, some stuff of my life. And he like accepted and okay, let, let him bring his uh, family. It was February 15, right? Yes, it's 15 February uh, 2016 when we first official visit <laughs> to their house and um, like after six months, we get married in Syria. Roman and Oge's time in Syria didn't last much longer. Now he tells of how they came to cross the border into Turkey by way of a smuggler. The mood grows heavy, Oge gets even more quiet and her eyes get watery. From the beginning, Roman had told Oge's family that if he had the opportunity to take her out of Syria, he would, and they accepted. For the two of them, along with Roman's brother, that opportunity came in a sudden rush. So uh, we decided to leave um Syria and there is um, the one who you know take people through the borders which in, in an illegal way we called him and we asked him to you know find a for us a way and he said there is a way but you need to wait like a month later uh, when we lost just lost hope and and we you know would be certain that we will not leave Syria so um, a month later, he called us and he said, tomorrow, uh, prepare yourself because we're moving. I was, what? So, uh, my parents called and they came from Aleppo and uh, her mom was in, in another village. So she um, came also and things was like just going crazy. We prepared stuff and what we should take, uh, bring to uh, with us and what not. So every person uh, cost uh, $1,500 to cross the border. So we, it was me, my wife and my brother. We walked from 3 a.m. to 8 a.m. like 
uh, five hours uh, to we were in, when we reached the near uh, the border. We walked in uh, the night between the mountains and it was like a nails. But when we uh, when we reached near uh, the border, the persons who you know lead us led us. Uh, there is like um, 400 meters that we need to cross it alone, and there is a soldier uh, that watching from far away, and then they said you need to bow and walk because if uh, the soldier saw you, maybe he will shot you. They ask their guide about turning back, but he tells them the local government is behind them looking for runaways and defectors, especially young men. Okay, we can't go back, and we need to uh, move him forward, but it is hard. The guide points out a small cave underneath the road. He sends them on, and from that point he communicates by cell phone. When we reached that uh, small cave, he told us if a military car stood upon you, don't leave that cave, okay? And we were so afraid because uh, some of them, we heard a lot of people uh, have been killed in, in, or murdered in, at the borders. Some of them, they been captured and they took them uh, to uh, ISIS or Jabhat al-Nasra, I don't know. So we were so afraid uh, until we heard the car stand upon us, uh, you know, in the street because the cave was under the street. We thought that is that is a military car, and, and on the telephone we couldn't understand it well because of the coverage. Until we heard, this is the car, move forward. So we went out of the cave and entered the car. When we moved out of the cave, the soldier saw us. So he started running toward us and he just, you know, screaming, stop, stop. I don't know what he said. He was speaking in Turkish. So I threw myself from behind and the, and the car went so fast. We don't know what we were doing. You know, it is a very dangerous trip to cross the borders. Um, and, uh, um, you know, we were like, okay, have we crossed the border or not yet? We were so shocked and, and just like, we're praising God for he saved us and he kept us safe. Anyone could be killed at that time. Anyone could be shot. Uh, but thank God that he made a, he, you know, brought us out of Syria safely. So where does this leave Roman and Oge now, and what happens next? In this time, we're gonna stay in Turkey and we'll register in consulates until we find a way to go out of Turkey. Because even here, in, for us, for like to stay in here in Turkey, uh, there is no future for us here. Along with about 90% of Syrian refugees in Turkey, Roman and Oge will not be in a camp. 
They plan to find housing and work in an urban area. They have some friends to stay with temporarily. In the long term, their options are slim and unclear. The 2016 EU-Turkey deal largely shut down the migrant channels into Europe, or at least made them more expensive and dangerous. The U.S. travel ban, which had been issued in its third form just a few weeks before I met Roman and Oge, only allowed 92 refugees from Syria into the United States over the next nine months. Roman figures that their best hope might be his extended family already in Europe. Like almost all of my relatives, they live in, in Germany. Uh, so maybe we'll go to Germany or to Netherlands or I don't know which way God's will open for us because it's not easy, you know, to live. And if you want to go to uh, like an illegal way, as a lot of Syrians did that, it will cost a lot. That's like for every person, it will cost like 8,000 euro. So that's not a joke, you know, it's a huge amount that we cannot provide for one person. How about three persons, you know? So we can live in, at any place. If we just want to live normally, you know, as, as other people. Uh, we have, you know, a lot of dreams. We want to achieve it in our lives, but we'll see. It's time for our closing mini-story. These little stories are meant to focus on the person outside his or her narrative of displacement. They do so in order to remind us that refugee is a term, not an identity, and that in the eyes of God, a displaced person is first and foremost his child created and loved by him. What follows is an outtake of sorts from the time with Roman and Oge. I met the young couple because we had ended up at a sort of conference together. On the last day of this conference, we took a bus tour to some ancient ruins on the southern coast of Turkey. There were about 30 of us. Many were Roman and Oge's friends, young couples and singles from the same area of Syria who were now spread around to different cities in Turkey. When we got to the ruins, we climbed a hill that overlooked the Mediterranean stretching out away from us, lurid and still. Further south down the coast, in the distance, a mountain stretched upward to a rounded crest, and on the other side, someone told me, sat the Syrian border. One of Roman's friends stood there for a minute looking out. He drew in a deep breath of the ocean air whispering in from the south and said, Mmm, Syria. Then he laughed and turned up the hill. The path took us through one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. It was lined with orange trees, olive trees, and herbs. Stone ruins lined parts of the path. We explored like kids, climbing around on the rocks, picking berries, shouting to hear our own echoes. All the while, my field recorder hung limp at my side, and my busy mind reeled. I worried I was failing to capture golden bits of dialogue and information. I wanted to ask the people in the group more questions about their displacement experience, their hopes for the future, their day-to-day -day life as outsiders in Turkey. But all of that felt out of place. The mood was light. They were all delighting in each other's company, rattling on, laughing. Yeah. 
In the end, I decided to simply be with them and try to enjoy the way that they were enjoying each other in a beautiful place. When we got back down to the bus, the sun was setting. We were next to the sea. Roman and Oge and I walked across the sand to the water. He told me it was the first time she had seen the ocean. Roman handed me his phone and I snapped a picture of them. If you looked at that picture now, you'd see a pair of newlyweds on vacation. A young, stylish couple with the world ahead of them. The word Refugee in that moment felt so unwelcome, so out of place. Like an ill-fitting uniform they kept bundled in a drawer until someone made them wear it, or a script they didn't want to read from. I wondered how long the world would keep them assigned to a role that they didn't want to play. All names and some identifying details in these stories were changed or omitted, and participants were informed about how their interviews would be shared. This series of Beyond Soundbites was created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. Other organizational partners include the Refugee Language Program, Exodus World Service, Tucson Refugee Ministry, Global Community Partners, and abounding service. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. Griffin Jackson was our content editor and story advisor. Brett Ratliff mixed the episodes. We'd love to create another series of episodes that go beyond sound bites in search of the personhood of displaced people, but we need your help. Find out how to donate and support at beyondsoundbitespodcast.org.